Welcome back to the second part of this two-part episode of Miracle on Mount Hood. If you haven't already listened to part one, pause here and do that now. Also a warning, this episode includes discussion of suicidal thoughts. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. The spring of 2013, college student Mary Grimm became lost in a whiteout on Oregon's Mount Hood. After hiking through snow and ice for some 16 hours, she fell nearly 40 feet on a steep slope, pinballing off trees and badly injuring her leg. She was alone, with little food and desperately under-equipped for the conditions. Nobody knew where she was. Her cell phone didn't have reception on the mountain, but she had a camera that she used to record a video message for her family and friends so they would know what happened to her. Mom and Dad, I love you. And I'm really sorry that I um, went alone, solo, like you guys always told me not to do. Um, Love you, Elijah. Love you, Ruthie. Love you, Jessica. Love you, Rachel and Josh and Jaxie. Um... I'm not really scared to die. Guess I'm a little upset for being so stupid. Um, but I love you all. So, I'm not really sure how much longer I'm out here for. Um, it'd be cool not to die right now, but um, I think I'm ready for it. Um, love you all. Um, tell the lady out in Nantucket that I won't be able to work for her for the summer. Um, tell my friends I love them. Uh, that's about it. God is good. Even though he hasn't answered very many of my prayers recently. At least not on this trip. That's what I get for being stubborn. So... Bye. I love you. Looking back, it was kind of a hard space to just kind of in a few moments have to process the reality of what your life leaves if you leave it and kind of all the things that I had left partially done or undone and the people I would have liked to see one more time or or say one last thing to. I made the video and turned it off and I was like, okay, Well, this is where people die. And so I just kind of 
hunkered down and, and conserved my heat and kind of waited for what's that going to be like, you know, and the stories when people get hypothermic and they die, they start to feel really sleepy and they drift off and it's warm and they don't remember anything and then they're gone, you know. I definitely wasn't feeling warm. I was, I was shaking, like spasming uncontrollably. My muscles were because I was so cold. And I was just breathing into that space inside of my jacket, trying to, to use all the heat that I had. And I was dozing in and out. And I had this dream that there was a pathway that I'd missed that went right around the edge of the mountain there and that I could just get up and go get off the mountain real easy. And so I actually got up and then I was like, oh no, because I just wasted so much body heat. So then I, I sat down again and got myself hunkered down and situated and stayed like that, kind of half in and out of sleep and um, trying to stay warm and just shaking like crazy. Mary had grown up a devout Christian and was planning to go into long-term missionary service after graduating from college. In all of her outdoor adventures as a young woman, her faith had been a guiding force. So when she woke up on Monday, very cold, but still alive, she did what came naturally to her. She prayed. And that was where I realized that God wasn't there. And I kind of panicked. I got really, really scared. And I was just like, okay, God, like, I know you must be there. But it was really the, the first time in my life where I have not known that he is and I know that sounds kind of weird, but there's a difference between like talking to God and believing that he's there. And, you know, like when somebody is standing next to you and you know they're there, like you have this kind of peripheral sense of their presence next to you. You don't need to be talking to them. You don't need to be like dialoguing with them for them to actually be there. They're just there. And for me, like all my life, since I could conceptualize the idea of God, I had had this sense of his presence, like this person right next to me here. All of a sudden, that was gone. That was truly the scariest part about being out there. You know, but I was like, okay, well, I'm here. I got to get off this mountain. So I packed my stuff together, and I took a look at the, the wound in my leg because um, I actually had a big old gash in my inner thigh area there. It was probably about six, eight inches long and about an inch or so wide. And mostly there was like red tissue and fat. And I just like covered it back over with my tights as tight as it could be. And I was like, I'm not gonna mess with that cause I don't know what to do and it's not bleeding. So that's good. And then I got up and tried to take a step and I stumbled forward and punched down into the four foot snow off of my little platform that I'd hammered out for myself. And it probably took me about 20 minutes to get myself back up onto that platform. And I realized that my other foot was sprained, that my, my right foot, because I tried to put my weight on it and, it and it rolled and tipped me over into the snow. And so then I realized, okay, I've got, my left leg has a big gash in it, my right foot is sprained. I'm out here in the snow. According to my climbing report, they should be looking for me. I'm in a pretty good visibility place on the side of this canyon wall. I should stay put because they're gonna be looking for me today and if I drop any lower into this canyon, I'm gonna go under the tree line and they're not gonna be able to find me. And so I decided to stay in my little shell that I'd hollowed out there and to wait and sat there and spent hours 
kind of going back and forth between shouting out, like physically calling out in case there was anybody out there looking for me and spiritually calling out, trying to connect to something like time, trying to get God to be there. The weather had improved since Sunday, but there was still a low cover of clouds along with occasional snow flurries. Mary spent her day trying to melt snow in her water bottle by breathing hot air into it so she'd have a few more drops to drink. At one point it rained and she used her poncho to collect the water. That night she fell into an uneasy sleep dreaming of making it down and being rescued. When dawn came on Tuesday, small avalanches had begun cascading down the mountains, some pelting her with snow. She decided she had to move to a spot where she'd be less exposed. I balled my hands up in my tarp and started kind of crab crawling my way across the snow to get out from under the canyon wall. Like I was very slow because I was really, really low on energy and I could only go a few meters and then have to take a breather. And I got about halfway to my destination in mind and I had to stop because I just had nothing left in my system. And at this point, I was like rationing my, my Keebler bars and my Nutrigrain bars. And so Monday, I'd eaten one Keebler cracker bar and one Nutrigrain bar. And then Tuesday morning, I ate one Keebler cracker bar and one Nutrigrain bar. And then I had another set left for the next day, and that was it. I kind of crabbed, walked myself across the snow and, and carved out another little shelf and hunkered down in that because I was just too tired to keep moving. And I kept up the same routine where all day long, I was just shouting out in case somebody was looking for me and watching the canyon wall crumble and listening to the sound of the stream and trying to connect to God and not having any kind of response. I was thinking about just like ending it, like throwing myself down off the, the lip of that snow shelf down the steep drop into the canyon and just being done with it. But then I was like, but then what comes after? I mean, if, if God's not there, what happens, you know? Tuesday night, I was starting to really feel the dehydration. And that night I dreamt that this cowboy came down off the mountain and offered me to come back with him to their little like Sherpa resort that they had there. And there would be water and I was like, okay, well, sure, you know, like if you can bring a horse or something to carry me because I can't really walk very well. And he's like, okay, you know, I'll do that. And so he left and never came back. And I started to get really mad. And I know this sounds really weird, but it felt like every night, like my mind went into overgear just trying to solve my problem for me. So every time I doze into sleep, my mind's like, okay, we can fix this and would come up with some solution. Wednesday morning, I woke up and again, the snow was still crumbling off the canyon wall into my little dig out there. So I kept on moving. I kept crab walking my way down the, the ridgeline towards where the, the trees were. And so that's what I was heading for. And I got about halfway there and I just gassed out. I had nothing left. And so again, I carved out a little shelf for myself and had my Keebler crackers and my Nutri-Grain bar and, and hunkered down. Mary had reached another low point emotionally. Once again, she began to think about taking her own life. I had 
considered like just ending it, like being done with it because I was so cold and so in pain and so alone and so at a loss as to what to do as far as like God not being there. And I considered just like suffocating myself and being done. But there were two things. One was like when I thought about that and I was considering it, one, I was thinking about like, well, what if they are looking for me and what if they find me and what if they find me just hours after I end it and they realize that, like my family realizes that I chose to put an end to my life when if I had hung in there for a couple more hours, they would have found me. Like, what would that do to my parents to know that to my siblings and my friends? So there was that thought. And then there was also just like this knowledge of the life that was inside of me. It was like this, this horrible, bright, burning little ball of light that just would not go out, no matter how much I wished that it would, and just give me peace and let me be done. But it wouldn't go out. And so I was like, okay, well, that's apparently not an option for me. Each night, Mary's dreams grew more outlandish. In her exhausted state, they led to half-awake hallucinations. There was this dream where the, the Jonas brothers, who I actually still have no idea what they look like, but in my dream, they were there and they're like, we're heading down the mountain. We can take you with us when we go. And I was like, oh, thanks. And so they're like, okay, we'll pack up your stuff. And then I, I actually did pack up my stuff and, and then kind of woke out of the, the dream and I was packed and I was like, well, I guess I should get moving because it was morning. And I made it down onto the ridgeline shelf there and made it down onto dirt, which felt so good. And the sun came out for the first time and the dirt was warm and I was able to put out a couple of bottles and melt the snow in them and actually take full drinks of water. And I started a little fire and I took off my gloves and, and warmed up my hands. I didn't dare take my shoes off because I didn't want to look at what my feet might look like at that point. Like I knew they weren't okay. At this point, I was kind of like, okay, you know, it's been days and days and there's been nobody looking for me. Like, I haven't seen a search plan. I haven't heard anybody. Nobody's been responding when I call or anything like that. And the only, like, sign of humans that I've seen at all are, you know, the airplanes flying into Portland International. And that, that was bizarre to be there on that snow slope with, you know, hundreds of people up in the air above you none of them aware of you and all of them going on about their lives and to just feel so deeply disconnected from the rest of humanity like so very 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 alone and by this time i was out of keebler crackers and nutrigrain they just had a little bit of chia seed and i figured well you know i've fasted for a weekend at least before so i'll just save this until i need it mary had a reputation as a free spirit so when no one had seen her for the first few days of spring break, her friends weren't concerned. It was typical Mary. But as the week continued, her roommates began to wonder if something might actually be wrong. So they called Mary's mom and dad, Shelly and Bruce. Here's Bruce. I hadn't really heard anything from Mary during that spring break week, but I didn't really expect to because she had these plans and she was going to do what she's going to do. And I figured I would see her when we came back to school, and, and that was that. So on Thursday, 
of the week of spring break, I had called Shelly. She said, oh, by the way, Mary's roommate called and wanted to know if we had uh, heard anything from her. So I called her and got into this conversation that Mary had emailed either her or one of the, one of her group of friends and said uh, Saturday or Sunday she was going to climb Mount Hood and that she should be back on Monday and that she wasn't sure if anybody had heard from her since then. And it was now Thursday afternoon and she had not contacted anybody. And so I said, we, we have to, we have to file a missing persons report because we, nobody knows where she is. I also didn't think that she had had uh, climbed Mount Hood because she had promised me she wouldn't do it alone. We'll be right back. As Mary's physical and mental state deteriorated further, she had another strange hallucination on Thursday night, just as she was falling asleep. So this voice was like, you need to get off of this ridgeline and introduced itself as like the trench cat. And I was like, okay, trench cat, cool. And the trench cat said, you know, you have to get off this ridgeline or you're gonna die. You need to get yourself down into that little break of trees. That night I was, you know, kind of dreaming in and out. And it was almost like different parts of my mind were like offering different solutions for what I needed. I was really in my mind trying to work the situation and, and change it and fix it in whatever way I could. Meanwhile, the search for Mary was finally underway. And in the middle of the night, the phone rang. And I remember immediately thinking, a phone call is good, a knock on the door is bad. Because nobody gives you horrible news over the phone. They would come to the house. So I answered the phone and they said that they had located the vehicle in the parking lot at Timberline Lodge. It had been kind of warming during the week and so there wasn't really snow and ice in the parking lot at Timberline, but under her vehicle there was. And so they knew that that vehicle had been parked there for a number of days. And they said that they were gonna be having a meeting in the morning to decide whether or not search and rescue was gonna mount a, a, a search because they really didn't know anything about where she was other than that's where the vehicle was. All during this time, somehow this, this is now blowing up on Facebook. Part of that is because I have been so vocal on, on Facebook trying to find anybody who knew anything about her. So friends and family and everybody who knows her uh, had been seeing the story and thinking about it and praying about it, and it was starting to snowball. Friday morning, I woke up, and the very first thing that happened was that God spoke to me and, and said, don't worry about what you will eat or what you will drink or what you will wear tomorrow. Like, it was like the whole world went right back into 3D, full-color, lights back on in a moment. Like, I knew that he was there and that I was going to be okay. And, well, <laughs> very emotional for me. 
and the second thing that he told me was that there were thousands of people praying for me. And I, I got up that morning and I was just like, I'm going to be okay. Like, um, he's back, like God's back and it's going to be all right, whatever else happens. They really didn't know anything about where she was other than that's where the vehicle was. They didn't know if she was climbing Mount Hood, which I was convinced she wasn't. They had found out that she had stopped at a couple of places. She stopped for gas and she stopped at REI. She bought an ice axe. It became clear that she was intent on climbing. And so at that point, they, you know, they were focusing all their efforts on, on the mountain. Friday afternoon, I saw the first search plane. They came right down the canyon and they circled above me. And I was sure that they had seen me. They circled three times around the location where I was and I was waving my hands and yelling. And I was just certain that they'd seen me because God had told me it was gonna be okay. And so I was yelling and shouting out and then the plane took off down the, the valley and kind of did this little wing tilt thing. And I was like, okay, they're signaling me that they've seen me. Obviously they're a plane, so they can't land. So they've got to go get, a, get their team to come and, and pick me up. We had decided that the next day we would go up to Mount Hood. They had had a, a small search and rescue party out that Friday night. They had a, also a search plane that also had not located any signs of her whereabouts. And uh, so we were going up there the next day. So I sat up there, I, I again climbed out of the tree line out onto the, the ridge and sat there until it grew dark. And I was yelling out in case they were bringing a search team up the canyon so they'd be able to locate me better. And it, it grew darker and darker. And I started to realize like, they're not gonna come for me tonight. There was a comment from a friend of ours from Southern Oregon expressing her support for us. And this family had had lost their son in a kind of a tragic outdoor accident not, not very long before. And I don't know that I that I could do that, you know, if I had lost my child that I could express that kind of hope and, and faith and to give moral support to another family that was going through uh, an awful situation. It was really at that moment that I kind of confronted in myself for the first time that, that Mary might not be alive. I was kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe they don't want to go out in the dark. Maybe they're afraid of losing more people, something. And I was feeling pretty discouraged. And then, as I was sitting out there on the ridgeline, the, the stars came out. You know, for me, it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, as a child, my mom would take us stargazing, and she, like, introduced us to all the different constellations, their names, and their stories. And so that night, sitting out there on that ridgeline and starting to feel really discouraged and, and confused, just having the stars come out, it was almost like having somebody come up and give you a hug and being like, it's going to be okay. And Saturday morning, I woke up really early before the sun hit where I was because I was on the west side of the mountain. So the sun comes up on the other side of the mountain and you can see the shadow of the mountain reaching out over the valley, over Portland. 
And so I got up and I packed everything up and I took down the little, I had made this little flag that I'd hung up in trying to signal somebody, but I was like, okay, well, they know where I am and I'm gonna, today's the day. While Mary waited to be rescued, the Oregon National Guard helicopter crew were deployed to help in the search effort. My name is Lieutenant Colonel Nathan Edgecombe. I am a pilot with the Oregon Army National Guard. I got a call from my boss saying that uh, there was a lost hiker they believed out on uh, on Hood somewhere. Um, it was during a storm, and uh, the details were fairly sparse. That it was a female young lady. Uh, remember this: that we were told that she they had tracked her purchases and she had just been at REI a couple days earlier buying some climbing gear. So, which indicated that she's probably pretty new at, at climbing. And, uh, and that she had been gone missing for five or six days. So honestly, we weren't, uh, we weren't real optimistic at uh, the details that, that we received. So I took down my little flag and I packed everything in my backpack and I sat out on the ridge line and I was singing, it is well with my soul. Shortly after uh, maybe 10, 15 minutes of hunting, we, we did find some tracks that we believed might be hers. And then we, we just slowly continued down. And just out of the corner of my eye, I saw something moving. Right as the sun hit me coming up over the mountain, I heard that sound that I'd been waiting for for so long, which was the blades of the helicopter, like that deep. Cruised over there, looked. Uh, it was Mary in a, in a tree well. I stepped out of the side of the van, and there came this really uh, tall guy in uniform, and he was in charge of uh, the rescue effort. I introduced myself, and, and he said, oh, I'm, I'm glad you're here. The, the helicopter is just over somebody now, ma matching Mary's description, and we'll know something here in a minute. He didn't say anything about whether the person was alive or moving, and so we all gathered together in the parking lot, and. and prayed. And they came straight down the canyon and came right over the top of me and turned around so their helicopter was facing me. And of course she was wearing a dark green poncho, which made it even harder to see. Um, had wind been up there moving the branches around, it probably we probably wouldn't have even seen her. I wish that I, uh, would have had the composure to pray something more eloquent than I did, which was just over and over again, please God, let it be her, please God. And I could see you guys like waving inside of the cockpit there, but at this point I was kind of freaked out because of the plane the other day. And so I was just like screaming and waving and being like, please come for me, come for me, like don't leave me. So it was just, you know, perfect conditions, a little bit of luck. We had a really good crew that day. And then we were able to uh, get a call off that we found somebody. And a short time later, he came back to us and said, it is her and she's alive. I kind of collapsed to my knees at that point. When they found her, they were in a place where they couldn't get a radio signal. So they needed to kind of rise up out of the canyon where they were. And they also said that they needed to compose themselves because they were just 
overjoyed that she was there and she was alive and, and it's not all too often not the outcome. It was really interesting that up to that point, all through the time I'd been out there, I hadn't really let fears or like what ifs or things crowd in around me. Like it all, it had all been just very practical of like, okay, well, here I am, what can I do? But then right in that, in those couple of moments while they were preparing for the rescue, like all these fears came in. Like, what if they haven't seen me? What if they fly away? What if all this stuff? And then the helicopter came back into the canyon and it started lowering this guy on a line. Probably about a 150-foot hoist down. We lowered our medic. You know, we didn't realize how deep the snow was there. It went, you know, he he went right down to his waist. They landed him on the ridge line above me, so he was out of sight for a minute. And I was like, what if he's like fallen into the snow and he can't get out, and I'm not going to make it out? And I was just all these really unreasonable fears just sort of flocking in at the last moment. And then he came up over the the berm, so I could see him. And he called down to me, and he goes, are you Mary Owen? And the thought flashed across my mind. I was like, well, what if I'm not? Like, I was like, yes. And, and he's like, can you make it up to me? The fact that she was standing, you know, and not, not, not we call it a popsicle, um, that she was able to move and get to the helicopter and get on board was, was uh, quite remarkable. He gestured to where the anchor for the helicopter line was, and he goes, we've got to make it over to there. Can you make it? And I was like, yeah, I think so. And he goes, you want me to carry you? And I was like, no, I can do it. And so I started crawling along the snow to the anchor, and God bless this man's heart. Like, he got down on his hands and knees and was, like, crawling along beside me. And I just thought that was so kind. We had to get her loaded up on the on our rescue seat and then uh, lift her into the helicopter. So they lifted us up off the snow and we went swinging out over the canyon on this line. And I was like grinning from ear to ear. All of the questioning and all of the doubting and all of the pain was over, like I was going to be okay. And there was so much relief and so much joy and so much just like everything coursing through my system. I felt like, like just, you know, letting out a whoop, but I felt like that wouldn't be very respectful and they'd probably get the wrong idea and think that I was just like some crazy person. Crew immediately went into first aid mode and, and uh, we, we carry a paramedic on board. She was in I mean, surprisingly good condition. So I think she had some like trail bars or some a little bit of food, but, but not much. Um, probably really wasn't prepared for, for what she was going to encounter. And the medic, the guy who had picked me up in the snow there, um, because took a look at my feet. They were swollen and black and really awful looking. And took a look at the gash on my leg and he also just covered it back over again and didn't like do anything to it. And I asked for some water and I asked them if my parents knew that I was okay and they said, yes, they know. You know, we we're on the phone telling people that she had been found. And they rolled me on a, on a stretcher into their receiving room there and that medic walked with, with the stretcher all the way to the room there. The first thing that Mary said to me was, I'm so sorry, Dad. As she had broken her promise to me. There was a sheriff there, and he asked me to tell the whole story. And there were a couple of things that were kind of interesting, because in their search, they they had followed the, the National Guard helicopter, or the search plane the night before had seen a sleeping bag print on the top of the mountain there on the summit. And he insisted that she had summited, and that they had followed her tracks. From the, from the summit right down to where she was. 
she didn't have a sleeping bag and uh, she was unable to follow her own tracks down. And he's like, well, somebody went down there. And I was like, I was the only one down there. Like, I never saw another soul. We agreed that, that God had answered our prayers and God had sent an angel to let them know where she was. I often hear these angel stories that people say, and I, I'm dubious, and, but I didn't have any other explanation for it. Going through that experience and being so close to death and then in the aftermath, seeing the impact on my family and like the first night that we were able to come home, which was two weeks after I had been hospitalized, we actually got to come back to my parents' house and we were sitting at the dinner table there and there was kind of this moment and it was very quiet where myself and my dad and my mom it just kind of hit us all at once. Like, we came so close to our family being irrevocably shattered, like, to have this gaping hole where one of us was. It was a really sobering moment. It was a really um, powerful moment for me, and it, it really brought home to me just the reality that, like, all of our lives are so deeply interconnected with the people around us. That year, I met the man that I am now married to. Two years later, we came back and we hiked Mount Hood together and we summited. And we had a beautiful ascent. And honestly, I wasn't really equipped much more than with what I had when I attempted my initial ascent. But, you know, the point wasn't like, don't go out and do things that could potentially be dangerous. Like, the point was, was that our our lives are precious and that we we live with essentially with the permission and the blessing of God like when we are alive when we draw breath it is because he wants us to be alive and he loves us in the months after Mary's rescue numerous stories were written about what she went through to her and her family's disappointment, those stories largely ignored the miracle that they believed had taken place, that God had sent an angel to guide the rescuers to her. And that God was acting not only in, in her preservation, but in the lives of other people who are all connected with that story. People can believe that or not, but it's our story. It's what we experienced and it's true. episode of Out Alive was written and produced by me, Louisa Albanese, with Zoe Gase and Corey Buhay, and editing by Michael Roberts. This episode was sound designed and scored by Jason Patton. Thank you to Mary Grimm, Bruce Owens, and Lieutenant Nathaniel Edgecombe for your stories and perspectives. Mary, her mother Shelley, and father Bruce co-wrote a book about their experience called Mountain Rescue, which you can check out at mountainrescue.online. Out Alive is made possible by members of Outside Plus. Learn more about all the benefits of membership at backpacker.com slash Outside Plus. If you enjoyed this episode of Out Alive, please subscribe and leave us a review. 